If you were living by faith, the one thing you would have been anticipating more than anything else would be the coming of the Christ. And Christ is basically means Messiah. <laughs> you would have been anticipating the Messiah. And this is simply what it means to live by faith in the Old Testament. You'd be anticipating the coming Messiah. Now, my question for you is why would you be anticipating the Messiah? And why would you be anticipating the Messiah more than anything else? And I want to I begin by asking this question and by trying to figure out why someone in the Old Testament before Christ who was living by faith would be anticipating the coming Messiah more than anything else. And so to answer this question, we got to go way, way back. we got to go all the way back, all the way to creation. And remember that God created a perfect world. God created a magnificent world. It was a beautiful world. Everything was absolutely perfect. It could not be better. And so God made man in his image as his representatives, as we know, to rule over his creation. And this is exactly what he did, and he was very good at what he did. Being created in God's image means, among other things, that we could love each other perfectly and love God perfectly, that we would relate to each other perfectly, that we would enjoy creation perfectly, that we would submit to God perfectly, we would do everything perfectly. <laughs> That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And everything was amazing and beautiful and great. But then you know what happened. Everything went terribly wrong in an instant when man rejected God's rule, embraced sin, and rebelled against their good and mighty God. Now, you have to remember that Satan is a, the father of lies, isn't he? He basically told Adam and Eve God's authority was stifling them. That's basically what, what, what Satan told Adam and Eve. He said, God's authority, God's ruling over you is simply stifling you from being all that you could be. It was, he, he said it was keeping them from enjoying everything that was good. So Adam and Eve believed the serpent and chose to throw off God's rule as if it was a burden over them. They believed this would free them to finally enjoy everything good that they were missing. But instead of becoming free, what did they do? They became slaves to the rule of sin and death. Sin and death from that moment ruled over them. The result was sin suffering, sickness, and the certain reality of death for everyone. To top it off, they were separa separated permanently from the very presence of our good and all-powerful God. And to this day, every one of us, even this morning, is constantly experiencing the bitterness of the effects of the rebellion. 
We are constantly experiencing the reality of the fall in our lives. Every time we experience sickness, pain, or witness death, we are seeing the results of the fall. And we can't escape the effects no matter how hard we try, no matter how far we seem to progress in technology, no matter how many books are written out there, we cannot escape the results and the consequences of the fall. These things are really, when you think about it, are kind of like God's gracious megaphone reminding us that everything is not right. And you know what? We should thank God for the problems in this world. Because if they were not here, we would think we are okay. And we are so much not okay. They constantly remind us that we need God. Praise God for COVID-19. Praise God for all the sicknesses and deaths that are out there. Not because we like death and sickness, but we love that it constantly reminds us that we need God. That we're not okay. And that is the most loving and gracious thing that could ever happen to us. Is we could be reminded that we need God. And so the fact that the world is not right is one of the greatest evidences to the truthfulness of God's word. It reminds us that God's word is true by the fact that things are not right. It doesn't deny God in his word. It actually gives evidence that everything God says is true. Contrary to what people will say. But this is where God steps in. This is where the good news comes into play. Here is what makes where God makes a promise that he would fix what has been broken. You find this promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, where God says to Adam and Eve, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, although this conflict would continue to be engaged in this world, right? There would continually be this battle that was being waged. Yet the prophecy declares that one day a human being, meaning someone descended from the woman, at great cost to himself, right? It says here that his heel would be bruised, will finally defeat the serpent by crushing his head. <laughs> finally defeat him. Finally destroy him. Finally ruin him and defeat his works. In this way, judgment would be brought on Satan, the deceiving serpent, and in this way, the Messiah would release, restore, and renew his people. And so, and so you and I should be able to understand why from this point forward throughout history, those who are of the faith have been anticipating more than anything the fulfillment of God's promise. And that, and I repeat this again, that is what it would have meant to live by faith in the Old Testament. You have been awaiting the promise of God. Now, this promise would have been somewhat vague, wouldn't it? You wouldn't understand a lot, except for that this a deliverer would be human, right? It would come from Eve, and so you would be longing for the Messiah to come. You would wonder who this descendant would be. You would wonder when the hero would come and deliver you from your great enemy. So for this reason, if you were living before Christ by faith, you would have looked and even searched to get a glimpse 
of the unfolding of God's plan. Just imagine the anticipation, longing, and looking for the unfolding of God's plan to be happening before you. And so I want us to ask the question, what would it have looked like to watch God's plans unfolding before your eyes? And that brings us to the text, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, we will be focusing on today for a brief moment. <laughs> you see, if you are watching God's plans unfold with anticipation, the words that the angels give in identifying Joseph would have been loaded with significance. It would have brought you great joy and excitement. Listen to what the angel says to Joseph and how he identifies him in verse 20. But, but as he considered these things, and what he was considering was he was considering how to get rid of his pregnant wife in a dignified way whom he believed had been unfaithful, and it says, Behold, meaning at this very moment, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, these words, the son of David, the words that the angel uses to identify Joseph with, don't really often mean a whole lot to us but it would have meant everything for those who were anticipating the Messiah. So the question is, why in the world would this identification be so significant? And in order to understand the significance of what the angel says in identifying Joseph, we need to go back in Matthew. <laughs> you can't go that far back, can you? You have to go all the way back to the very beginning of the book in verse 1, and you'll find that verses 1 through 17 are basically a genealogy. And only in reading and understanding this genealogy can you understand the significance of the son of David. So I'm going to read the entire genealogy. All right, you ready? <laughs> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Minadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So this past minute, for some of you, has been the longest minute in a very long time for some of us. <laughs> Genealogies can be very hard for us to take. Many of us have a tough time stomaching them. Kind of like corn, right? When you eat it, it goes right through you and doesn't satisfy you at all, right? So why is this generation so important? Why is this genealogy so important? Why is it so important that I read this and that we hear this and that we understand it? Well, besides the fact that this is in God's word, right? The very fact that this is God's word tells us that this is important and we need to hear it. We don't even need to go beyond that to understand how important it is. This is from God, it's for us. But this genealogy is particularly important for us because it tells us the lineage that Jesus came from. That he matches the lineage required to be the Messiah. It tells us that Jesus came from the right line. He fits all the requirements that are necessary for him to be the Messiah. And so what I want us to do with this genealogy for the next few minutes is to follow it together. As if we were watching the plan of God unfold before our eyes. And I want us to follow the three main periods of time outlined in this genealogy. And we're going to watch as God increasingly over time narrows the line of promise from Abraham to David and finally to the exile experience. So after the initial promise of Genesis 3, this verse 15, that's the initial promise that all of this comes from. God first begins to narrow the promise of where the Messiah would come from through the line of Abraham. And you can see where God makes the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, when he says that through your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God takes a pagan unbeliever, Abraham, and tells him that through your seed shall the whole world be blessed. And to help us understand what, what God is saying here, better, Paul explains it in Galatians 3 verse 16. Paul explains what God is saying to Abraham and his promise in Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3, in Galatians 3, verse 16. Listen to these words. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So what Paul makes clear here, and he's expounding Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and telling us what it means. And he makes clear that the promise here was not to the seeds, plural, but to the seed, singular. He is saying that this offspring, this line that would come from him, that the promises made were to the seed, to one individual who would come from Abraham. And that is the Christ, the Messiah. So it's through this Christ, through the Messiah, that all the promises come. That's what Paul is saying. They all come through Christ and the Messiah. Isn't it amazing what one part of a word 
The significance of understanding one part of a word, singular versus plural. It tells us how important it is that we understand the individual nuances of the words of the Bible, if we're to get it right. (laughs) How significant is it that we understand God's word, that we are good students of the word of God, that even singular versus plural makes a difference. So this is the one through whom the promises will come. Now, if you didn't know any better, you might think that Abraham himself could be the one who is going to be the one through whom the promises come. Was Abraham, or maybe his immediate descendant, going to be the one through whom the promises would come, who would crush the serpent and ruin his works and deliver God's people? Well, this possibility is immediately squashed as Abraham and his children are far from perfect. They make many mistakes. Abraham himself lies and doesn't trust God at times. But yet, yet, and understand this, that even though Abraham was far from perfect, yet his life was chiefly marked by faith. He was chiefly marked by faith in the promises of God. He was looking forward with anticipation to God's fulfillment of his Messiah that would come. And that is true of all who are living by faith. And actually, Abraham becomes the model of faith, doesn't he, in the New Testament. He's our example. He's our model of what it means to live by faith. So as we continue to anticipate the Messiah, we, we, we see again here that God again narrows the line through which the promise would come even further. And this time, it's through the line of David. You can see where God narrows his promise through the line of David In 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 through 16, and 1 Chronicles 17, verse 11 through 15. And I'm only going to read 13 and 16. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now once again, we hear these words and we know that God's, the, the, the seed of David is the one through whom the ruler is going to come. And you might think, well, maybe it's David himself. Maybe David's the one. But once again, this hope is quickly squashed as his life is marked by failure as well. In fact, it says here that uh, part of the genealogy is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that is the very one that David committed adultery with and had her husband killed. But like Abraham and all who are of the faith, what we see is that his life was chiefly marked by faith. He too was looking for the promise of the Messiah, and that is what characterized his life. That is what he lived for, chiefly and primarily. Now there's one more line that is narrowed down here, and it's not a person, is it? It's not a people. It's actually an event. It's the exile. What we see here is there's one more experience that narrows down through whom the promise would come, and that is the exile that God's people went through. You see, the prophets declared God's unpopular word to the people that God was going to bring judgment unless they repented. And the prophets suffered dearly for that message, didn't they? Just like they do today, right? Right? People suffer dearly by saying that unless you repent, You are going to suffer the judgment of God. 
And so God's people were headed straight for the cliff of God's judgment. They were careening like a car that is out of control. And the prophet said, unless you repent, you're going to go into exile. And because they failed to repent, God sent them into exile through the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And if you understand what's going on here, you can see that their being kicked out of God's promised land is parallel to being kicked out of the garden, to being kicked out of God's presence. A very similar picture is being presented here. That God's people cannot remain in his presence. They're constantly kicked out. But what we see that in captivities, in captivity, the promise of God would have looked like an impossibility. It would have looked like there was no way God could have ever fulfilled his promises. Everything was over. Everything was done with. And you can imagine the real struggle that God's people would have experienced trying to make sense of it all. You see, there's a sense that they would have had confidence in the promises of God, even if it was hanging by a thread, right? God's people would have still had confidence in God's promises, even if it was barely holding on to it. But at the same time, it would appear and feel like God had abandoned his people and that he no longer loved them. They would have asked, why have you broken your covenant? Where is your steadfast love of old, which you swore to our father David? You can see this very struggle if you read Lamentations and if you look at Psalm 89. But then we know what happened, don't we? God powerfully showed up and returned his people from exile 70 years later and brought them back to their land. But notice, there's a catch. The return is quite a dud, isn't it? It's kind of like a big letdown. Compared to the expectation of God's messianic promises, this was the biggest letdown. This was not even close to the fullness of the messianic promises that God had given them. You see, the deliverer was a pagan king, not the Messiah. The deliverance was not the fulfillment of the messianic promises that God had made. It was best a picture of what awaited them, a faint reflection of the greatness of the promises that awaited them. And then at 400 BC, the Old Testament ends with the messianic promises unfulfilled. The promised offspring of the woman has not yet come to make things right. Abraham's descendants had not blessed the world. The Davidic line was broken and had not produced the forever king. And so we end the Old Testament longing and looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise. So on this note, on this note, in light of all that we've looked at, you can understand the significance of the words that the angel says to Joseph when he identifies him as the son of David. Do you see how that that, ter- that way of identifying Joseph would have been loaded with significance for someone who is anticipating the coming of the Messiah. He is, he is qualified to be the Messiah because he is in the right line. And what is more, we know the angel continues to say, not only is he qualified to be the Messiah, but he is the Messiah. And we will look at that more next week.
He is the promised seed who has come to make things right. That the world has been anticipating and longing for and looking towards. Now if you were living before Christ by faith, you would also have watched the glorious wisdom of God displayed before your eyes in the unfolding of his plans. Now you might not have seen it as glorious and wisdom at the time. You might not have understood how it would have been glorious and wisdom of God displayed for you. But what you would have seen was the glorious wisdom of God in his plan unfolding. So what was so glorious about the plans of God that were unfolding in the Old Testament before the birth of Christ? So first, what I want you to notice is the flawed line shows us that Christ came to save sinners. You see, if this was supposed to be a line of nobility, you would be ashamed of the names, every single name that was written in this genealogy. We cannot go into great detail here, but every single individual, even the best, are flawed. Even Abraham and David were flawed. And so if they had been longing to produce a perfect lineage, every single one of them you'd have to cover up in shame. But the fact that the lineage is filled with flawed people is not surprising at all because no one could have risen to the place of being the Savior. No one could have risen up to the position of being the Savior. It was impossible. The lineage, in fact, bears witness that no one could save God's people. No one could be the Messiah. No one could rise up to do what the Messiah was supposed to do. And this is why God himself had to take on flesh and stand in your place. This is why Christ himself had to come to redeem his sinful people. This is why it says he did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And this is why only God could have done this. God in the flesh. Veiled incarnate deity. This flawed lineage is the right lineage for the marriage, to, for the, sorry, for the Messiah to come through. And it is fitting that he would come from this exact lineage. But second, notice that the various types of individuals, particularly the four women that were mentioned, included in this line, show us that he came for all types of people. Now the fact that four women are included might not seem like a big deal to us at first, but most ancient genealogies, for one reason or another, excluded women. And these are not just four women who are mentioned here, but they are former pagans, even Gentiles, who came from outside of Israel. They were not the types of people that you would imagine being in the line of the Messiah. Tamar was a Canaanite who disguised herself as a prostitute in order to seduce Judah. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who lied to protect the Israelite spies and helped overthrow Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite woman who moved, um, to, who moved to Israel after the death of her husband. And finally, Bathsheba. And we already know Bathsheba, right? The wife of Uriah the Hittite, who King David got pregnant and then proceeded to have her husband killed. This shows us that the good news of the gospel is for all types of people. 
for Jew, for Gentile, for slave, for free, for male, for female, for prisoner, for the homeless, like Abraham and David, for all types of people, for all types of people like you and me. We are the Gentiles that are part of the all types of people. Praise God that he came for all types of people, that we are not left without hope. Third, notice the greatness of humility the Messiah displays in coming to such a flawed line of people. What an amazing thought that God chose to come to such a line of sinners. He humbled himself and took on flesh. And not only that, you know, that's pretty far down, isn't it? When you think about coming to earth, leaving your heavenly home and condescending all the way to earth, taking on flesh. But that was not as far as he went. He went even farther down. He went as far down as you could possibly go, taking on the shame of the cross, taking on the shame of our sin on himself, the humiliation of being identified with sinners. And it was not possible for him to go down any further. What humility. It was not possible for him to come from any farther up and not possible for him to come any farther down. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is not possible any greater humility than the humility that Jesus displayed. It's impossible. Fourth, notice that nothing can stop God's promises. Neither David's sin, nor the exile, nor the enemies could ever stop God from fulfilling his promises. The genealogy shows us through obstacle after obstacle that God's promises cannot be stopped and that he is in control. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it appears like, even if it's not on our timing, and it never is, and even if it doesn't happen the way we could ever imagine it happening or it ever wanted to happen, it is going to happen, and it's going to happen God's ways. His promises will be fulfilled, and all these things are ultimately, even the obstacles are ultimately serving to fulfill God's purposes. Even the sin along the way is serving to fulfill God's purposes. How amazing is our God. Fifth and finally, notice that all the promises will be accomplished through the Messiah. It all rests on the shoulders of the one who has the biggest shoulders of all. There's no one else who could carry the load that the Messiah carries. And he carries the entire load. Every part of the load he carries. He is the one who single-handedly carried on his own back the salvation of all of his chosen people. What an amazing God we have. And this should bring us the greatest, greatest comfort this Christmas. So most of us are anticipating Christmas, and it is a good thing to be anticipating Christmas, as long as it is for the right reasons. My question for you is, why are you primarily anticipating Christmas to come this year? Are you primarily anticipating spending time with family that you love, seeing friends that you don't usually see, receiving gifts that you really want, getting time off and experiencing the rest that you really need? 
Now, none of these things are really bad in themselves, are they? But they're not what you should primarily be looking forward to as you anticipate Christmas. What you should primarily be anticipating is celebrating, celebrating the arrival of Christ. Celebrating the fact that Christ has come. There is nothing worth celebrating more than that. Nothing compares to that. And there's a way you can know what you're anticipating the most this Christmas. You can know what you're anticipating the most by what you find the most joy in. What you find the most comfort in. What you find the most peace in. What you find the most happiness in and satisfaction. Is it quality time? Is it family? Seeing friends? Receiving gifts? Rest that you might find? Now there's nothing wrong with these things, is there? There's a degree of happiness, a degree of satisfaction that comes from them. But they are very limited, aren't they? You can also know what you're anticipating the most conversely, but what makes you the most upset or angry or passive because you didn't get what you think you needed for Christmas. Whether you don't get to spend the time with your family you wanted or friends or the gifts you wanted or time off to rest. There's nothing wrong with a little sadness from not getting these things. But there is a problem when they create resentment and anger. When they make us passive to those around us and unloving to those around us. What it reveals is that we are anticipating and loving these things more than we ought to. And we're not anticipating and loving Christ the most. So you can examine your life this Christmas. What do you find joy? What do you find happiness in? What do you find the most satisfaction in? Do you become angry because these other things you do not get as you think you should have? These things will reveal what you are really anticipating this Christmas. And so you and I need to settle in our hearts right now what, it, what is really the most important this Christmas where you are going to find your greatest joy and happiness. And there's no other place than in Christ where that can be found. So I pray that each of us look forward with anticipation this Christmas to celebrating the birth of Christ above all other things. And only then can we be loving, joyous, peaceful people and be a witness to the world around us that there is only one thing that is ultimately worth celebrating. And that is Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the good news that you have brought to hopeless, undeserving, unworthy sinners a great and magnificent salvation through the one and only Savior who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we thank you so much that you came to us we thank you so much that you have worked this amazing, gloriously wise plan throughout time that we can look back on and see the hand of God at work through the most insurmountable obstacles, Lord, that only display your greatness and your power. And so, Lord, as we look, Lord, to the next few days that are ahead of us, as we anticipate celebrating your birth, Lord, may you fill our hearts with joy that our Savior has come, that he has defeated sin and death, that he has brought us eternal life, that has brought us into the favor of God, 
through Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's any in here who are not saved, who are right now hanging under your judgment, rightfully so, I pray that you would deliver them from your wrath and bring them safely into your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would bring a great revival to this church. Revive our hearts, O Lord. Ignite our, our hearts and our minds that we might praise you as you so rightly deserve. And may we celebrate your birth with hearts that are full. In Jesus' name, amen.